Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Last week in episode 602, we heard the first hour of the interrogation that later led to Sandy Melgar's arrest, albeit 19 months after that interrogation took place. From that point forward, Detective Ruben Corazal began building a case against Sandy Melgar. Then in the summer of 2014, she was eventually indicted by a grand jury. From that point forward, three years went by before prosecuting attorney Colleen Barnett took Sandra Melgar to trial. After just hearing a brief overview, as we have in the first two episodes, of Sandy's story and how the police interrogation went, I'm sure most of you, just like me, have been wondering, how did a prosecutor build a case against Sandy? And more to the point, how did they manage to get a conviction? There's no better source to tell that story and explain the case against Sandy Melgar than the prosecutor who tried and convicted her. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show, Harris County ADA, Colleen Barnett. We have joined with us on the phone today, all the way from Houston, Texas, Miss Colleen Barnett, who tried Sandra Melgar last year and and won the conviction. So first of all, I want to thank you very much, Colleen, for coming on the show with us. It's, I know it's a, you have a busy schedule. And we appreciate you taking the time out of it to speak with us. Well, thank you for having me. I, I appreciate being able to talk about this case. So let's go ahead and get started with, um, I'll let you kind of introduce yourself and your, um, you know, who you are, what you do, and what your background is a little bit before we get into the case. Okay. Uh, my name is Colleen Barnett. I am an assistant district attorney in Harris County, Texas. I have been, uh, I have a number of years of experience as a prosecutor, more than like 22, 22 or 23 years as a prosecutor. So I have uh, a lot of experience trying cases and um, evaluating cases. And you took on this case last year. Now, it's my understanding that, and I know there was a a number of years, uh, nearly five years from the time of the incident until this trial. And it was like 19 months before an indictment. During that time, it, it, were there prosecutors that came in and out through elections and things like that? Or how did it, how did the case land with you? Did you have it from the beginning or did you pick it up just at the end? I picked it up at the end. Um, 
yes. That it was handled by different prosecutors in the years that, um, in I think 2012, 13, 14. And so um, I was looking for a case to try, and I didn't know anything about it. But the prosecutor that had it had also like a number of other cases coming up. And just asked me if I was interested in it. And I was interested in it because it sounded like an interesting case. I did not know there was a a media um, interest in it, which didn't matter. But, you know, some people really like to seek out the the media and some don't. And I feel uh, less comfortable um, having media watch me try a case. I'd just rather just try it. But there was a lot of media um, exposure on this case, and, and, you know, it was fine. So with all that, that media, that's, that's part of what brought, um, actually the case was brought to us by family members. Uh, but then we quickly realized that there has been some media attention. I'm sure you're aware there was a Dateline NBC episode. So as, before we start kind of digging into the nuts and bolts of the case, uh, what was your take on the way the case was portrayed or has been portrayed in the media, specifically like in the Dateline NBC, which is what probably gained the most notoriety prior to us t- picking up the case for the podcast? Well, I have been on Dateline before, and I watched the segment that they put together, and I thought that it was fine, but they left out a lot of stuff. And they're, they're like, the thing that they like to do is through the course of the television program, try to keep it as a, did she do it or did she not? It's not like a, it doesn't portray one side or the other, if that makes sense. It, it leaves the viewer to make up their own mind about whether or not she was guilty or not. And so, Having watched that show, and I knew it should have been a two-hour show because they left out a lot of stuff. And I can understand why people feel the way that they feel because they didn't get to, A, they didn't see the trial. They don't know what the evidence is or was and were not able to judge for themselves based on a fully complete record, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And that's that's actually the reason why we wanted to reach out to you. As you know, we're, we're waiting on the full set of the police files and DA files to to do exactly that. But we want to make sure that we're we're giving the full story, and for me specifically to to know the whole story, um, and, right. and that's why it's it's amazing that you, you that you were able to come on and present that side of it. So as we move into getting into the case itself, uh, I want to give you the opportunity right from the get go to state your position. Um, do you believe that Sandra Melgar was in fact not just legally but factually guilty of the murder of her husband? Yes, absolutely, 100%. And by the way, if I thought that the, she was not guilty, I never would have tried this case. I would have dismissed it. That is my, um, that's the thing that we're supposed to do. We're only supposed to follow the evidence and, and try and prosecute somebody that we believe is guilty. It would be unethical for me to do otherwise. And I would never, ever have tried the case if I did not think that she was guilty. So let's talk about that now. If you can kind of go through what you think are the, are the biggest stanchions of your case? What, what are your points of guilt? If we can kind of go through them, I don't know if you have like a bullet pointed list or however you want to do it, but kind of point by point, what, what led you to believe that Sandra Melgar was in fact guilty? I did make a list of some things that I wanted to talk about and I tried to organize them in a way. And so let me just start first with just the, the how and the situation uh, before anything ever might have happened. Okay. Okay. So fortunately for me, um, the house was on the market to be sold um, in the in the weeks or, or a month before we went to trial. And I contacted the real estate agent that was uh, had the house and asked if I could come and look at the house before they closed, and she agreed. So I went to the house and uh, was able to go inside and get an idea about the neighborhood, the house, where things were situated, 
because there were a lot of crime scene photos that you can't really, I mean, you can look at them, but being inside the house gives you a better understanding of how big things are, where things are, what kind of views she might have had in that situation, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So um, when you go in that neighborhood, it's, it is, it's a quiet little neighborhood that's um, very, there are a lot of trees, there's, it's, it's very um, soft, it's quiet. Um, they lived on a street that was off the main road. Um, the, I think it was like the second or third house in on, on the, on the street that it was on. All the houses were nice. It was just quiet. And it, it didn't, it didn't strike me as a house that anybody would naturally pick to do a robbery, number one. Mm-hmm. So, and the fact that it was in that neighborhood that they hadn't had any type of robberies or any type of crime like that before. And when you have to think about what a person who wants to go and try and burglarize that house, what they're looking at, the Melgars, according to Sandra, were awake, and it was like, I think, midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning. So they had four dogs that were barking, and they were in the jacuzzi tub talking about how much they loved each other for two hours. Why would a burglar go into a house in that neighborhood where the people were not only there, but they were awake and had barking dogs. That doesn't make sense. The, nope. the burglar, okay. if there was one, there was no forced entry into the house. The burglar, if there was one, did not bring with him or her a backpack to take anything from the house. They did not bring a weapon with them. So it's not, there's no understanding of how they even got in the house much less what they were doing in the house while they were there. They didn't have a weapon, didn't have a backpack, didn't have anything. When they left, um, if there was a burglar, they opened the garage door, which would have caused a, a big sound, and that would have alerted anybody to them coming out, and left the garage door open. Well, if they didn't get in through the garage, why would they leave through the garage? That didn't make sense. They didn't take anything. There was a backpack found in the garage that belonged to, I think, the daughter that she identified that had stuff in it, like earrings and different things of jewelry, but it was left in the garage. Why would the burglar pack a backpack that that wasn't his, put stuff in the backpack, and walk to the garage and leave it in the garage? That doesn't make sense. None of that makes sense. Okay, now regarding some of that stuff, if I understand correctly, unless I've, I've been misinformed from the some of the district clerk's documents, there were some things missing. Wasn't there like a DVD player and a television and and some maybe some prescription drugs? Well, I mean, maybe that's what they said. But there there was supposedly there were televisions all over the house. Mm-hmm. There was um, an idea, or someone said, maybe it's the defense attorney said. But there was a, a TV that was taken from the top, from the, the, um, from one, a, a, like a table or something that was in the bedroom. Um, and so what, there was, they couldn't prove that they had a TV there. They, I didn't know if there was a TV there. Why would they take a TV? There's no car. There's no video from across the, the road about anybody leaving with the TV and then walking down the street with the TV. It, that, that doesn't make sense. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's your opinion that they there was literally nothing still. So that the, the items that were listed by the family from being taken, you don't you don't think that there was anything taken at all? Well, okay. I don't I mean there was nothing that I could see that was taken, but there was remember there's that backpack in the garage was with jewelry, nice jewelry in the backpack. Why would they leave that in the garage? It just doesn't it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. So there's all kinds of there's still all kinds of issues just from the very beginning of how a person would come into a house where people are awake with barking dogs with no forced entry didn't bring a weapon didn't bring a backpack and murdered one person and then tied up another person and put them in the closet that does not just on its face make sense. Okay, yeah, and I and I agree. There's definitely it's this is one of the more bizarre scenes, probably the most bizarre scene that I've ever come across. So that that's basically the the situation, the scenario that that doesn't add up. At that point, we're talking about almost proving a negative about what didn't happen, uh, that there wasn't a home invasion. Um, exactly. Okay, so let's pretend like, okay, so we've talked about just the outside of the house and the very factors that don't prove um, that anybody made entry into the house. We've got those factors. Okay, so now we just, let's start from the inside of the house, all right? So there's, have you seen pictures from the inside of the house? Yes, I have. Okay. So if you look in the, the bedroom picture, there's a picture of the bed and then there's the dining room chair, right? Right. Are you familiar with that? Yes. Okay. Why is the dining room chair in the bedroom? Did a robber move that over there? I mean, there's no explanation for why. And that is the chair that has all the blood dripping from it. So the original blood that comes off of Jamie Melgar is on that chair. Why is why would a, why would anybody move the dining room chair over to the bed? And there's no explanation for that. A robber certainly wouldn't have done that. Why would a robber do that? I was actually wondering about that chair myself as, as not having the full set of crime scene photos. And and maybe you have an opinion on this. From at this point, I'm piecing together you know what I've read and the few photos we have. They said there was like a red rope that was described as being around Jaime's chest. Was that correct? Yeah, it was laid on top of his chest. It wasn't like behind him, and it was like a. It wasn't a rope. It was like a cord. Okay. It was about. It was about the size as the width of a jump rope, like okay. a you know one you would buy at Target or something. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't very thick, and it matched another red cord that was in a different bedroom's closet. Okay. Um, what so I, that had to be something that, the, again, the burglar got from inside the house. 
Okay, so there are sex toys underneath the the pillows in the in the master bedroom. Were you aware of that? No. All right, so there's that, which is, uh, by the way, against Jehovah Witnesses' rules for them to have sex toys, is my understanding. Okay. Did you know that Jamie was an uh, a an elder at the church? Uh, yes, I had heard that. Okay, and do you know anything about the Jehovah Witness religion? I know. Quite a bit. I've had some experience with it and have done quite a bit of research lately and have found that the different kingdom halls have very different rules depending on, on where they're at. Okay. Well, we're going to get to that in a minute. Mm-hmm. And in any case, there's a picture of Jamie that shows um, a, I don't know what to call it, but it's a straight line from like his collarbone up to the uh, right side of his neck. Okay. Have you seen that picture? No, I have not. I haven't seen any of the the crime scene photos or ME photos yet that have Jamie, uh, Jamie in them. All right. Well, I had a blood expert uh, talk about the the blood patterns in the the room. And by the way, there was no blood anywhere else. So right. the idea is, and and behind the chair is another piece of material. It's like a, it's called a it's a bench. I think it's like a shower bench. Right. I've seen that. And yep. It had blood on it, except for it had a. It looked like there was a towel on top of it, where the blood got only on part of the bench and not on the other, based on the towel. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So the idea is: this is the idea that that I came up with. That Jamie is sitting in the chair. There's sex toys underneath the pillow, and she has a knife that she's probably. She talks a lot about getting massages and that kind of thing. Jamie was not into to massages, but she was. She's, she's talking about, uh, she's probably behind him. They're doing some kind of something or other. She pulls out the knife, and the first strike is going to be that, that one linear uh, knife wound from the left part of his chest that goes straight away across his neck. There's that one, that one striking, striking um, cut, I guess. And so after that, when he gets up, he turns around, and there's no place for him to go because he's got the bed on one side, the wall behind him, the closet to his left, and he's blocked by that dining room chair in front of him. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. And she's got a butcher knife in front of her, and she starts stabbing him. Now, he doesn't have any kind of weapon, but he has a lot of defensive wounds, so he's trying to defend himself, and she just gets the better of him. And it doesn't take that much for her to stab him, and all of those stab wounds are not deep. They're only one or two inches deep when the knife is, is like five or six inches long. So it's not any any big brutal man who's using all his force to stab him. It's, it's, they're very um, shallow uh, stab wounds, okay? Okay. So he has no place to go, and so she leaves him then in the bathroom. I mean, sorry, in his closet. Now... Um, the, why, okay, so number one, why would a robber, I mean, nobody, let me just back up for a minute. So she says that she doesn't see the, the stabbing going on. She acknowledges, I think, that that's where the stabbing occurred because that's where all the blood is and it's all belongs to Jamie. But she says in her, one of her stories is that uh, we were in the jacuzzi for two hours talking about how much we loved our, you know, how much he loved me and how much, what our plans were in our future and la la la. And he got out and to get the dog. And then I waited 15 minutes. He didn't come back. So 
I started to get out of the tub and blacked out. Well, in my visit to the house, um, and she tells the detectives where she was in the jacuzzi tub. She said, I sat on, as you're entering the bedroom, I sat on the left side. And if you've seen the photograph uh, of the house, you see that in the jacuzzi tub, there's one side that has kind of like a pillow type shape thing right. on the left side. Have you seen that? Yes. Okay, that's where she was sitting. Well, if you if you look at the other pictures that I introduced when I went into that house, when you're sitting in that position, you can see the door to the bedroom and the closet. She would have had full vision of what had happened over there and that brutal stabbing that was less than 20 feet away from her. Okay. Now, so, now is that would that be assuming that the bedroom doors were open? Because no, I. I'm, I mean, I haven't seen those photos yet. I've just I've just diagrammed the crime scene, and 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 I'm actually looking at it up on our board right now. And it, it looked like it's a, it's a pretty t- like maybe it's possible if all things were perfect, but it's not. It's not necessarily a direct clear shot, especially with the bed being between the the tub and the closet door. Okay, I'm not sure that I understand what you're saying, but if you're sitting, if she's sitting in the tub and she turns her head, um. To the right, she would see what was – well, first of all, if there's a fight between those two and, it's, and he's stabbed, you know, a, many times and they're fighting with each other, she's going to hear it. I'm telling you, I measured the, the distance between the tub and the closet, and it was 20 feet. Okay. So I just can't imagine that she would be in the tub and not hear anything or see anything. Him screaming – or yelling her name or something that just that does not make sense. Okay. So okay, so there's that. All right. So then, um, why would the the burglar then put the knife in the jacuzzi tub and a white blouse? Why would the burglar do that? That doesn't make sense. Yeah, I, I don't know why anyone would do that. I was confused about that myself. Right, because Sandra probably forgot about it. She probably put it in the the um, tub to try and clean it, and she was busy cleaning up other stuff and just forgot about it. Was there was there evidence entered that there was any evidence in the house that that she that anyone had tried to clean up? Well, there was a um, a bucket with water and a and a um, and a mop in the living room. I'm sorry, in the dining room. Right, but nobody could ever explain why that was there. There wasn't any blood in the water. I, n- I don't know why that was there. I mean, I just don't know. I think I read it somewhere that it was because they had four dogs that had accidents in the house. They kept a mop handy. But but there was no blood found on that mop, right? Uh, that's my understanding. Is no blood was found on the, mat, the mm-hmm. mop also. But the, also, you have to remember that the, the blood was contained in that one area by the, the chair and the bed and the closet. I mean, Jamie didn't go anywhere. Right. He was trapped. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. And then was there any, he, he was found, if, if I'm correct, he was found completely nude, correct? Yes, that's right. Right. Uh, was there any of, of Sandy's, I mean, with a, with an attack like that, there should be some sort of, tra- did you find any of her, any, any touch DNA, any blood, any, anything of hers on him? Um, I don't specifically remember if we did, but even if we did, I mean, it's answerable for, that's her husband. That's her house. Right. How are any touch DNA or any DNA that she has on him going to 
provide any evidence for us on whether or not she killed him. It won't. Right. I don't think, yeah, I don't think that would, that would necessarily help your case at all. I would just think that maybe it would hurt your case if she didn't leave any on. If, you know, if he had gotten out of the tub and then, and then this happened or he was in there nude and there was, what, then there was none on him. That would seem like that might be maybe something that makes your case a little more difficult. I'm sorry. Would you repair? Would you repeat that? I'm sorry. I don't think that it obviously wouldn't help your case if her DNA was was on him, but it would seem that if her DNA was not on him in this situation, that that might might make your case a little more difficult. It might might hurt your case. Oh, I see what you're saying. Well, I think probably that's the answer because when she when the family comes over and discovers her, she runs to his body and touches him. So. I mean, and the witnesses said that that's what happened. So, you know, I don't necessarily think that that would have been anything to help or hurt the case, whether her DNA is on him or not. Okay, and so then uh, moving on to your your next kind of points of guilt. So, so so far we've talked about that it's not a situation that uh, that the story just kind of doesn't make sense for a burglar to do this. Uh, and then we have the the blood in just the one place, and you have the the murder weapon in the tub. So I'll let, you, I'll let you continue on from there. All right. So the idea then is, okay, so if, if you believe her story that somebody came in and what we've already talked about, all the different things that the burglar would have to overcome in order to commit a crime that he prepared, did not prepare for apparently, is he brutally stabs to death the husband. She's 20 feet away, doesn't hear it, see it, or know anything about it, but yet they elect to tie her up and put her in the closet. That's not, you know, why would they do that? That doesn't make sense either. So, um, the stories that she tells about how she was tied up vary. The first one that she says is that, um, she, that her husband goes, uh, that he leave, goes to the kitchen to get something, comes back, um, then he goes, the dogs are barking on the outside. And um, and she can hear them barking on the outside. And so he goes outside to get the dogs. And then she says that she just blacks out. Then story number two is she waits 15 minutes for him. And then she blacks out. Then she changes it when the detectives try and catch her on that, like that she's been waiting 15 minutes and Jamie doesn't come back and she doesn't hear or see anything. Then she shortens it to six minutes or five minutes. Um, then she, when she blacks out. Then she gives another story of she remembers um, getting out of the tub and there's a, her, her closet is in the bathroom. It's a nice large closet, but it's the, the, the entry to it is through the bathroom. She says she's sitting on the chair, um, getting, putting lotion on her legs. Again, hasn't heard any kind of anything happening with her husband being stabbed to death. And then somebody comes in and hits her on the back of the head. Well, she's, if she's sitting on a chair, she's facing the bathroom. So she would have to see somebody coming in towards her to hit her, but apparently she doesn't. So she says she blacks out. And then an additional story of after they've hit her and she's on the ground, then she sees a woman staring at her. And then in another story, she says that she sees a, uh, or she, somebody's got their knee and her back and she looks up and a woman's staring at her and there's a man behind her. So those those were stories, and then she tells the police that they hit her on the left side, and then she tells the police somewhere else that she hit them on the right side, and um, she says that she's had a seizure, 
but she never reports. She hasn't had a seizure in years. And in her medical records, it shows that she's gone to the doctor before um, the stabbing and after the stabbing and doesn't re- ever report that she ever had a seizure at all during this time. So that's another um, an, another big warning that this is not really a truthful statement on her part. Now, is there is there any truth? I, th- I thought I saw one of the documents in the, the medical charts where or, or at least it was referenced in one of the files that the, the, there was a notation there where the doctor had written that last seizure occurred on twelve twelve, which was just like eight uh, ten days before this. No, I don't recall that. I don't know what you're speaking about. Okay, okay, yeah, and that's something I haven't seen a source document for. I think that might have been in the motion for new trial. It was referenced. Okay, well that's different. But the, the her she well there was never I never did find out who. Um, I mean, she. I do agree that she had a seizure disorder order from when she was young, but she was on medication for that. And she had a, I've forgotten what you call it, your primary doctor, I guess, is that what you call? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I visited with that doctor that she had been, that she had seen for years. And I got the medical records and introduced them into evidence to show that when she went to see that doctor before, you know, the, in the, in the, I guess, years or months, before the the murder and after that she did not report that she had had a seizure. And in my mind, if you had a seizure and blacked out and missed somebody stabbing your husband, you would think that you would tell a doctor that. But she didn't because she didn't have a seizure. So, um, the, and the, the neurologist that, um, testified was a, somebody that had given, uh, that had, had been a doctor for Sandra Milbar but it had been several years since he'd been since he had treated her, and so even when she had this supposed seizure, she did not go to a neurologist for help. Okay, you're talking about the the supposed seizure on the night of the murder. Yeah, well, I'm just saying. Okay, so picture that someone has a seizure and, uh, disorder, and because of that seizure disorder, that they had a seizure and weren't able to help or defend their spouse from being stabbed. You would think that you would go to the doctor and ask for help for that. But the medications that you gave me is not working. I had a seizure. My husband stabbed to death. None of those things happened. She hadn't told anybody that she had a seizure except for the police. Okay. And that's including the doctor she went to a few days after the murder? Yes, that was not a neurologist. I've forgotten what kind of doctor he was, but it wasn't a neurologist. Okay. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. At this point, your feeling and your theory is that that her story doesn't make sense. You you obviously don't believe that she had a seizure, uh, and you don't believe the story about the memory loss. You think that she should have been able to uh, see the attack happening from the bathtub or or hear it, 
Um, was there, any, and I'll let you continue with your list. Is, does any was, was there any direct evidence tying her to it, or was, was the case entirely circumstantial? The case, the case was circumstantial. It, it combined with her statement about what had happened that it changed so much. Okay. But, it, but I mean, she never confessed or anything like that. She never gave a statement that she did do it. She just gave different versions of stories that she didn't do it. That's correct. She okay. never confessed to it. Right. Okay. And then I'll let you move on if you have is, – is there more to the case that you presented at trial that maybe people aren't aren't aware of yet? Well, I don't know. Uh, yeah, there was more that I, per, that I prepared for trial. And one of the most difficult things that I had in when I accepted the case was how did she tie herself up? I mean, if she is, in fact, the one that did it, she would have had to have tied herself up. And mm-hmm. that was a very important factor for me. So um, the, the sheriff's office – okay, so the way that she was found – well, by the way, and she had already um, made preparations for the family to come over that day. So that was something that had happened a couple of days before, is making sure that the family came over. Because if the family had not come over, um, you know, she wouldn't have been discovered and we wouldn't have this whole thing starting. So I, when, when the family got there, they uh, heard her screaming. So the garage, one garage door was open, which we've already talked about. And by the way, there's no way to open the garage door from outside of the house. They did not have any type of availability to do that. You ha- you could only open the garage from the inside of the house. So one garage door was open, and there were two garage doors. The, the They parked one car on the left side of the garage, and on the right side of the garage, they could not get a car in because there was so much stuff on the right side. Have you seen pictures of that? Yes, I have. Okay, which is another reason I meant to say this. Another reason why a burglar would choose to leave on that side of the garage. That doesn't make sense because they were they would have to go through and over a lot of junk that was on that side. So mm-hmm. there's that. And also, there was a bicycle right there. They could have taken a bike. You know, bicycles are always stolen, but that wasn't taken and that was left there, which is another red herring, probably. So, um, all right, so let me get back to the sheriff's office saw that underneath the um, the door of the bathroom, there was a rug. And they took a video of somebody on the inside being able to pull the door shut by pulling the rug underneath the door. Does that make sense? It does. Okay, so so we know that she could have done that from the inside. It pulled that door shut. We know that that could happen. And what I mean by that is, and I left this part out. There was a door. There was a chair up against the doorknob on the outside. You know that, right? Right. Yeah. And the listeners know okay. that. They know the kind of the basics of how that she was with the uh, the chair wedged against the door and her being tied up inside. Right. Right. Okay. So the, the sheriff's office did a, a video of that, which you've seen, or if you haven't seen, you will see mm-hmm. that and known that, that she can pull that, that way. Okay. So then the next thing was, um, how did she tie herself up? And at that point, I didn't know what the tie looked like because when the, the family came over and they saw, uh, they heard her screaming, they pushed the chair away, they opened the door, saw her with her hands tied and her feet tied. And, and you know that a family's not going to, like, look at the knot to make sure it's a legitimate knot, right? They're going to just get that off as soon as they can. Do you agree with that? Well, I, I mean, I've spoken to the family that was that was there uh, that, that did it, and they what they told me is that they tried to untie it, and it was so tight they couldn't get it untied. So that Maria then 
ran through the house to try to find a pair of scissors and and had to cut it off. Well, the father tried at first, but he has he's disabled in that his his he has a problem with one of his arms, and I do believe that they thought it was legitimate. But the point I'm trying to make is they aren't looking at the legitimacy of the knot; they're trying mm-hmm. to get it off. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So what I finally was able to get um, the evidence to the courtroom, so I could introduce it into evidence. I pulled both of the 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 knot the the belt or the tie for the wrist as well as the tie for the feet, and I looked at them. And I I need you to be able to try and put this in. And maybe I, you ought to do this at home because that, that's how I figured this thing out. Mm-hmm. When I put the pieces together for the ties. I could see, based on the cuts, I could put the ties together and match the, the materials together. Think of this as like a bathroom uh, robe tie, okay? One okay. long skinny tie, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, if you make two big loops and just tie the ends together so that each end has about two or three inches, are you with me on that? Yep. Okay, that's what it looked like. Two big loops with the tie tied together in the middle. Okay. Okay. Is that with me on that? Yep. All right. Now, if you put the one one big loop over one wrist, maybe two, two two loops, and then you put it behind your back and put your other hand in the other loop, it looks like a legitimate tie. Okay. Yeah, and, and I, that's what she did. Yeah, and I think I saw the uh, in the the Dateline NBC episode. I think you demonstrated that on that that episode. Okay. That's right. I forgot. Okay. Yes, I yep. did. Well, that's what it was. That's exactly what the tie was. Okay. Because there's no way a burglar would do. I mean, that's not a good tie. They would never tie it that way. That doesn't make sense. Okay. So your your theory is that she she tied herself up um, using this with the what sounds like kind of like a figure eight was made with the belt from the robe and then kind of twisted herself up in it and then and then pulled the um, used used the the rug or pillow sham to pull the the chair up against the door. Correct. Okay. Correct. Uh, one question I had that I have, and and you'd probably be the best one to answer this. Did you did you or the police ever interview the family that actually found her in that garage in that closet? No. Okay. I, I didn't. I mean, the family did. I mean, excuse me, police officers did, but I never talked to them. Okay, because I I wasn't sure because from from what I was hearing, and I, and I guess when I get the full file back in the sheriff's office, I'll know. But it sounded like they were they were never interviewed even by police to get the the full picture of what the crime scene looked like. And that, I mean, that seemed like, like a, a pretty serious ball being dropped there to, to not get that interview. You're saying you think that the police did interview them? Well, I know that they took pictures of them and yeah, they, I believe they, yeah, they got their story from them. I'm almost positive because it was basically the same, you know, everybody said the same thing. We got invited to come over for dinner, came over, the door was open. Nobody answered the door. We went in. Yeah. They gave a statement because I remember reading it. Yeah. Okay, because one of the things that they described to me that that I thought kind of conflicted with the the rug theory was number one, they said there was no rug inside, and in that Herman specifically remembered the, the the legs of the chair being on the tile that there was no rug underneath the chair. Do you recall that? I think he might have even testified to that. I don't remember that, and and it wasn't you know, and this is just semantics, but it wasn't a rug. It was actually a pillow sham. It was a right. big pillow sham, though, and it looked like a rug. And no, I, I don't remember that, and I don't think that that's correct. Okay, and it, and it, well, I, I mean, I know that that they have specifically told me that that was what they saw. So, it, with that being the case, I mean, do you think that there 
lying about it? And if so, is there evidence against that other than than it not fitting the theory? Well, I don't know. No, I don't. I'm not suggesting at all that they are liars at all. But I do think that they are not investigators, and I don't think that they really necessarily paid attention to that because why would they pay attention to that? Why would they be looking for that? I don't, you know, I just don't think that that's anything that was on their minds, if, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. And we see that a lot in very, you know, in, in high stress panic situations. People don't, don't always notice everything. So yeah, I certainly agree with that. I was just curious on your take on it because it was, you know, I saw the, uh, the demonstrations, uh, the video of the, the chair and thing on Dateline. And then, you know, I was surprised when I spoke with the family and they said, well, nobody ever asked us what happened and this is what happened. And there was no rug and there was, and we tried to untie it and we couldn't get it untied. We had to cut it. Um, so they were, they seemed to be very conflicting different versions of the story. Well, I do. I'm sure that they remember that they tried to uh, untie her. Absolutely. But I I can't imagine that they would notice that there wasn't a rug. I mean, why would that, why would they even notice that? Sure. And and did you, there what rug wasn't found by police inside of the closet, right? Or the the sham or whatever it was. The door was already open. Right. And the, and the, the, the chair was on the sham or right next to it. It was crumpled up. Okay. So, I mean, why would it even be there? Why would the pillow sham be on the bathroom floor by the chair? Mm-hmm. Okay. So now we're looking at the, you, you now have a theory as to how the crime could have been committed by Sandy. And we have obviously the, it's, it's a bizarre scene that would, it would seem, you know, crazy for lack of a better word for a burglar to have broke in and, and committed this crime. And I, I think you've shown like how she could have done it. And you said, and that was the kind of the, that between her changing statements was kind of the, the, the circumstances surrounding the circumstantial evidence that, that, that made the case. Was there anything else that were, that were strong parts of your case? Yes. Um, her religion. Okay. So I, I know very little about Jehovah Witnesses, um, the religion of Jehovah Witness, but I've talked to friends of mine that are in that and I did some research. And the, my my understanding is, and I think that some of the defense witnesses confirm this, but I'm not exactly sure, that you are really, as a Jehovah's Witness, only allowed to hang around with other Jehovah's Witnesses. That you're not really allowed to have outside friends. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's my understanding. Or at least in this Kingdom Hall, that was my understanding. And she had had friends from Jehovah's Witnesses um, for a long, long time, and they all testified. And... The other thing is that you are not allowed to divorce your husband, um, or or the husband's not allowed to divorce the wife. I think it goes both ways, unless both ways, unless one of them is is uh, cheating, which Jamie would never have done. I don't think, and I don't believe that he did. There was no evidence that he was cheating, nor there wasn't any evidence that she was cheating. But my understanding is that they were um, in some type of counseling, and I learned this after the trial that there were some people in that kingdom hall that did not think that they were happily married. Um, I don't know that to be true. That That's just like triple hearsay. But the idea that she would never be able to um, divorce her husband, she would have to stay with him. And if there were problems in the marriage, and it, it looked like that there were sore spots based upon her testimony. And of course, anybody that's been married for a long time, you know, there are always going to be ups and downs. I mean, I just, she talked about how great her marriage was, but there were, you know, they had differences. Like she, after, during the Christmas holidays, which would be Christmas for us, but not for her because they don't celebrate that, she had planned to go visit her, her family, and he wasn't going to go with her 
because he didn't like, they liked to eat meat. She didn't like, I mean, he didn't like to eat meat. He was on a diet. He was talking about different diets that she should go on and stuff like that. It just looks like there were, there were sore points in their marriage, which is normal. But, um, she wasn't going to be allowed to, um, divorce him. And the only way to keep her freedom and stay with her friends is if she got away with murder. Basically. So, so your, your, your theory on the motive was, so she wouldn't be like shunned or excommunicated from the church if she divorced him. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously the, the obvious response to that is it's a, I, I think that, I think one Jehovah's Witness put it to me that, um, uh, divorce is frowned upon, but it's not thing that to be ex- excommunicated for, but murder is a mortal sin and by their beliefs would, would, would keep them out of, out of the kingdom of, he- of heaven completely. It just, it, that just seems very contradictory to me that it's, that she's so, feels, she feels so strongly about her faith that she would resort to murder to maintain her standing in that faith, but then commit what's a mortal sin. You know, you know what? Do you see the conflict there? No, of course I do. But when you're thinking about, you know, I can maybe get away with this, it's a different thing. I mean, this wasn't something that she dreamed up that night. This has been, she had to have planned this sometime in advance. Right. But I mean, getting away with it with the police and getting away with it from, from God are two different, very different things. If we're talking about her beliefs and faith. Well, of course, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I really don't want to get in a religious, um, deal with you, but I, I don't know really why she did what she did. That's a theory. And I didn't, mm. you know, and I don't know that I, I can't remember if I argued that or not. I don't, it wasn't, it, it, we don't have to prove why people did what they did. Because right. It'd be forever hard. It was difficult to do. So I just know that my when I was trying to find out um, about her religion, I was surprised at some of the things I learned, and it fit in with why she would have done what she did. What she did um, if she tried to get away with it. There's a reason for why she killed him, and and I believe it's because she could have her freedom and stay with her church and stay with her friends. That's what makes sense to me. Because when you're trying to do what you want to do. Um, a lot of times you don't think about what's going to happen if you die and go to heaven or what the Lord's going to say. You're just going to want to do what you want to do. So that's my thought about it. Okay. And that's, and obviously it's, there's no sense in arguing theory because they're just theories, right? Um, right. Yeah. And so, um, any, anything else as far as the case? Uh, I want to make sure you, you finish making sure you get everything out, um, out there to the listeners about, about your case before we move on. Yeah. I, I think I've covered most of it. Yes, sir. Okay, so I guess a question as we, or I guess one more other question I want to ask you is, did the police interview any alternate suspects, or did they only focus on Sandra? Um, they did interview people, but it was much later. Um, they entered, like, there was that guy that they thought looked um, suspicious. I think they eventually interviewed him. Um, there was another guy that they suspected was the killer because they had had um, problems with him as a renter on a different house. They spoke with him. They tried to speak with everybody. I think that that was brought up, but there was Jamie didn't have any any. I mean, Jamie was loved. I mean, people thought he was really liked him. That he was a great guy and was friendly to everybody. He didn't have any enemies that they knew of. Uh, Sandra couldn't provide any name of anybody that would have done something like this. So they just didn't have any anywhere else to go, and it just seemed so obvious to them that she had done it. 
Okay. Um, and so I guess the last question that I always want to ask is, obviously we look at these, we look at these cases and then we're in the very beginning stages of it. Um, and of course we've got kind of the family story and then we have kind of your, your, your version of events. And then we break down piece by piece painstakingly over months and months, every, every bit of the case. And, and the big question I always have for prosecutors is I understand your position and your feeling of complete guilt, uh, and, and that you absolutely have the right person, but will you consider new evidence if it's provided that is clear and convincing evidence of uh exculpatory evidence towards sandy will you consider new evidence if it is put before you okay let me always i would consider new evidence that that is um viable accurate uh good evidence i am not an appellate attorney though so this would have to go through another set of lawyers at this office but there would never be a time when i would not consider something um, that was credible and reliable to make a determination of if that would affect the case. Of course, I would look at that. Perfect. Um, great. And uh, so, Colleen, I think that's that's everything I have for you. I want to give you the opportunity before we, we let you off. If there's anything else that you want to put out there, but I want to let you know that I very much appreciate. I know it's you know it, it's kind of tough coming on a podcast, especially knowing that we we typically cover potential wrongful convictions. And I just, I just really appreciate you you coming on and, and presenting your side of the case to us. Well, thank you. And I do have a question. You said that you heard today some stuff that you didn't hear before. What do you mind telling me what things you had not heard before? Um, just some details like the uh, one that's sticking out of my mind, the uh, like the sex toys behind the, the pillows. And, and then when you were talking about the, the view, the angle from the, the bathtub to, the bedroom and things are in, into the closet. Some of those things I hadn't, I definitely hadn't heard that, that stuff before. And, you know, we just, I just don't have the, the evidence yet to confirm all, all any of that stuff. So most of what I have is um, through firsthand accounts of people that were there. And from uh, the few crime scene photos that I do have access to the Dateline episode. And then, you know, some of the district clerk, district clerk documents and, you know, what's the, 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 the most, uh, uh, beneficial one for us in there is the the motion for a new trial because it's at least eighty eight pages that's giving us you know some background on the case. But we're really right. you know, working kind of blind right now at this point until we get the rest of the file. Yeah. Do you have an opinion? Uh, I I don't. I mean, the, the most opinion that I have right now is I think that there's definitely two sides to this. I I don't share your opinion that this is that she looks absolutely guilty. I think that I could. I could raise for as many questions as you have about how crazy it would be for a burglar to come in and do this. Um, I could raise, I could raise similar questions of how crazy it would be for, uh, Ms. Melgar to have, uh, committed the crime herself in this way. But I, I do not have an opinion. I can't say that, that she's guilty or that she's innocent. I think it's, it's an extremely interesting case and I'm looking forward to getting to the answer. Well, me too. I hope that, that you can find the answer. That was something that we've never experienced before on the Truth and Justice podcast. Never has a prosecutor been willing to come on the show to defend their case against the convicted. For that, I applaud Colleen Barnett. Today's episode has been a great place to lay the groundwork for the rest of the work that we have to do moving forward. Ms. Barnett has laid out her case against Sandy Melgar. 
Now it's our job to figure out, will the case stand up to the scrutiny of the Truth and Justice Army? Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. And Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com also created our Season 6 logo. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. We also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.